Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you again for the opportunity to gather with family and friends and to be able to worship you today. Lord, we remember that um, we're able to do so because when we were lost and dead in our sins, you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to take the penalty of our sins for us. You suffered and bled and died upon a cross, and three days later you walked out of that tomb alive. And because you did, we can have uh, the hope of eternal life with you now and for always. So Lord, we worship you, we celebrate you today. And again, as we just sang about a little bit ago, you were invited into this place to come and to speak to us. And Lord, I pray that you prepare us right now, that we'd be willing to listen and receive everything that you'd have uh, for us today. And so God, we give you our time, and it's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen. And amen. Well, church, it's great to see you guys again today. And this is the first time or first time in a long time. We started a new series back in the fall on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. And uh, this morning we're continuing in the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ, specifically the parables, which are essentially the stories that Jesus told from everyday life in order to communicate complex spiritual realities to these very mixed crowds of people who were following him at the time. And so the parable we're going to look at today is going to be a really interesting and fun one. Uh, that's going to really make us feel the tension between being a person who is marked by fairness or marked by justice and then being a person who's, who's actually marked by grace. And so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at the first uh, 16 verses in this passage and take a look at this parable here. Um, as you're doing that, any of you guys really into Enneagram right now along with the rest of the country? Enneagram personalities. I feel like everywhere you, 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 you post on like online and stuff like that, I, just a little fair warning to the ones and the eights. You're going to be pretty offended by this parable uh, today. It's probably going to get your blood boiling a little bit. Uh, it's kind of a fun thing. It's the latest personality trend, even though it's been around for about, I think, 40, well, really, really long time. I don't know how long it is, but it's been a long time. But the ones are kind of the people that uh, they're described as the reformers. These are the principled, purposeful, self-controlled, and perfectionistic people that uh, love for everything to be perfect and right all the time. And so uh, if you're all about fairness or justice, I mean, that is absolutely going to be you. Uh, they're big into social justice and the kind of righting all wrongs and things of that nature. You got the helpers or number twos. We all go by these number systems right here. The number threes are the achievers. These are the very, very driven people that are like, hey, if I've got a goal, I'm going to go after it. I'm definitely going to accomplish that goal and, and get it all done. Uh, then we got the individualist right there. Number four is expressive, dramatic, self-absorbed, and temperamental. I don't think that was a very fair description right there. But um, number five, you got the, the, the investigator here. Do you guys know what your number is? How many of you guys kind of know where you fall on this whole thing? Right, okay, if, if you're not, this is, you, you're kind of going, okay, this is a little bit me, maybe, maybe not, something like that. You got the loyalist over there, um, and the, those are going to be people like Ruth, maybe from the Bible, uh, definitely going to be a loyalist. Then you've got uh, number seven. Oh, I didn't renumber those right there. Um, sorry, that's wrong. Number seven, it, where it says three, that's actually in a uh, number seven, that's the enthusiast right there. Uh, and that's going to be the people that are kind of fun-loving, spontaneous, distractible, and easily scattered. Happen to identify a lot with the enthusiasts right there. Um, and then eights are the challengers, right? These are the people that are very, very confrontational. Uh, we, any eights want to, uh, you want to own it this morning? You're the confrontational type. You're powerful, dominating, self-confident, decisive, willful, confrontational. We're talking John the Baptist here, maybe. Maybe Deborah from the Old Testament, something like that. Uh, I love eights. I come from a family of eights and identify with those a lot, quite a bit myself. And then, of course, you got the peacemakers right there. These are the easygoing people that, uh, that you never have a problem with at all. But, but as I kind of say that, like, like the ones, the eights, you justice-oriented people, 
all about right and wrong and fairness and stuff. Like this parable is going to kind of get under your skin just a little bit, and it might start to make your blood boil just a little bit. And to be fair, it's not just like the ones and the eights. Uh, I think we've all got this sense of of justice where you want to see uh, wrongs made right. You want to see things uh, in the world become fair. You kind of want to know that things will work their way to being fair. Uh, I mean, when you, what it's one of the first, you never have to teach a child when they're first born to say, hey, daddy, that's not fair, right? That's one of the first things that we learn to say. You come out of the womb saying, okay, this is not fair. Um, But what that means is that it can be really, really difficult for us, and it can be really, really frustrating for us when God chooses to operate on the basis of grace instead of on the basis of what's fair and what we think is fair and unfair. On top of that, it could be really, really difficult for us to operate in the same way towards other people when it may not be fair to be able to step into this world or this realm of generosity and grace when we're so used to operating in this world of what's fair. And it's exactly the conflict and the tension that Jesus is going to address for us in this parable that we're going to look at today. And so the question that he's going to essentially confront us with is this. Number one, like, are you and I people um, who are totally and completely marked by God's grace? Or are we recipients of grace who have a very difficult time giving it out? I mean, that's, that's the question that Jesus is going to confront us with today. So again, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 20, again, we're going to look at these first 16 verses here uh, together. Now, the, the parable actually picks up, uh, it's a continuation of chapter 19 here. And so here's what's taking place in chapter 19. 19 is going to be this, this uh, story where this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and uh, he's got everything in the world. And he asks Jesus, okay, Jesus, what else must I do in order to be saved? And so he's got money, he's got wealth, he's got success, he's got all these different things that the world has ever wanted. And he comes to Jesus saying, okay, what else do I need to do in order to be saved? In other words, he's recognizing something may be falling short here. And of course, Jesus goes, okay, it's not really on the basis of what you're doing or bringing to the table. However, if that's how you see fit to be justified, then here's what you need to do. You need to leave everything behind, sell what you own, leave it all in order to come follow me. And of course, you remember this story. The rich young ruler is not happy with that response. Of course, he turns around dejected and he's like, I'm out on this. I'm not going to follow. I'm not going to sell it all in order to follow Jesus. And then Jesus makes this point and he says how difficult it is for rich people to enter into the kingdom of heaven because it is so easy for material wealth and success and power and all the things that that brings with it to ultimately become your God. And so at this point in time, the disciples are looking at Jesus and they're going, okay, well, if, that, if it's difficult for those people to get into heaven, so what about us? What, how are we doing here? Who can be saved? And of course, Jesus responds and he says, okay, with man, salvation is impossible. In other words, you're not going to earn it yourself, but with God, all things are possible. And then Peter presses him a little bit more, no, no, Jesus, you don't understand what I'm asking you, okay? Like, what about us? Your disciples right here. Okay, that's great. Like, are, are we okay? Are we saved? Are we in your kingdom at what you're talking about? And of course, at this point, Jesus gets really encouraging to them. And he says, okay, uh, you're okay. Essentially, yes, you're going to have eternal rewards in heaven. You're going to have thrones and dominion and authority and rule. You're going to have a hundred times as much as you had, as well as the gift of eternal life. And so he's really, really encouraging to them. And then he wraps it up with this one famous verse, which is going to lead into the parable we're looking at today. He's going to say, for many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. 
In other words, many who are last uh, here on earth, such as you disciples, you B-teamers here that people don't give any credence to, any credibility or anything like that, many who are last here on earth will end up being first in the kingdom of heaven. And many who are first here on earth, such as the rich young ruler who had everything in the world, uh, they will ultimately be last. And so that's the context in which he begins this entire parable. He's going to explain why it is that way, that the first will be last and the last will be first. And here's what he has to say. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning around 6 a.m. in order to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. About 9 in the morning, he also went back out, and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever it is that's right. And so they went. He went out again about noon. And also about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, did the exact same thing. About 5 in the afternoon, he went out, and he found still other people standing around doing nothing. And he asked them, why why have you been here all day long doing nothing? And they say, because no one's hired us. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And so basically, here's the scene. You've got five different groups of people and this uh, wealthy vineyard owner. He goes and he hires these five different groups of people. We've got 6 a.m.ers, 9 a.m.ers, uh, 12 p.m.ers, 3 p.m.ers, and then 5 p.m.ers. And he says, only to the people that are there at the very beginning, okay, you work for me the entire day. I'll pay you a denarius, which is a day's wage. And everybody else, you come work for me and I'll pay for you whatever is fair. And so you've got all these different laborers in the field and so far so good. Verse 8 comes along. And it says that when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon, they came in all nice and clean and they each received a denarius, which again, as I said, is a a full day's wage, probably about 150, maybe $200 for a day laborer's wage or something like that. And so you can imagine the 5 p.m.er comes in and they're getting paid first and they're coming in clean at the end of the day. They didn't do a whole lot of work and they're getting an entire day's pay. I mean, they're leaving this place and they're going to be really, really pumped up about what just happened. I get, I'm getting paid an entire day's wage. And of course, it's not just them. I mean, everybody's going to be looking at this thing kind of going, okay, this is incredible. If that guy's going to be getting an entire day's wage, like what am I going to get? I got here a lot earlier than he did and I worked harder than he did and I did more labor than that person did over there. And so everybody's going to be looking at what's taking place here and they're going, hey, this, this, this is absolutely incredible. And so the boss just keeps going on down the line. And then it says in verse 10, when he got to those who were hired first, it says that they expected to receive more, which is pretty natural, right? I was there earlier. I worked harder. I I, I did better work. But it says that each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Anybody else kind of feeling the tension here in this passage? I mean, if this happened to you at your work, it's why they don't share each other's salaries uh, openly in the company. It's why you don't say, hey, here's your bonus check. Go, go check it out and compare it, compare it with other people in the church. I mean, it's like you, you don't do this. If this happened to you at your workplace, I mean, you're going to be furious about this kind of a thing, right? Um, he says this in verse 13. He says, but he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? In other words, I paid you what I told you I would pay you. We literally talked about this. We came to an agreement about what was going to take place. You're going to work for me the entire day. I'm going to give you this denarius. In other words, he's saying, I've done everything that I said I would do to you. I'm faithful. I haven't cheated you of anything here. So take your pay and go. Don't I have the right to do what I want to with my own money? Or here it is. Are you envious because I'm generous? Are you envious because I'm generous? 
Now, at this point in time, you can imagine the other workers are kind of, they're sitting around kind of going, yeah, like that's exactly what we're mad about. This isn't how the world works. This isn't, I mean, we're not socialists here, right? This, is, this isn't how we do things here. I mean, we, we get paid by, by what we do, and, and this isn't, that's exactly what we're angry about. What you're doing right here is not fair. It's not just. Like, like we've been here longer. We've worked here harder. We deserve more than those people over there. And, of course, that's what's going to bring Jesus to the main point of this entire thing. In verse 16, he wraps it up one more time the same way that he began, and he says, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. In other words, like, you, you really want to get what you earned, then fine, you'll get what you earned, but it's not going to work out how you thought it was going to work out because you haven't actually earned what you thought that you actually earned. So kind of like the rich young ruler here, if you're trying to earn your way into the favor of God, then that becomes a problem because uh, the requirement for earning your way into the favor of God is total and complete holiness. And so you may have gotten there a little bit earlier than other people did. You may have worked a little bit longer. You've been, you may have been a little bit more obedient and done it a little bit better than other people. But the reality of the parable is that you and I are also 5 PMers who are in desperate need of God's grace. And the truth of this parable is that like, that's not an easy thing for a 6 a.m.er to hear. Like the 6 a.m.er are the people that, these are the people that got there early. They've been faithful. They've been obedient. They've sacrificed. They've been doing everything right for a really, really long time. They are driven people. They're self-sufficient. They are very disciplined. They are very responsible in everything that we're talking about. So, so who's he talking about specifically here? Who is, who's the 6 a.m.er? I mean, you could definitely make the case that the 6 a.m. is probably um, the, 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 the non-believer who is continuing to trust in their own righteousness, their own sense of works, their own stay, uh, sense of what may be fair and unfair. Um, and Jesus is going to say, okay, if that's what you're trusting in, much like the rich young ruler, if that's what you're trusting in, then you're going to end up being last in the kingdom of heaven. Um, but what he says here is that this person's actually received grace. This person's actually received a denarius. This person got paid exactly what the vineyard owner said that they were going to pay him. In other words, like this could be people like you and me. The 6 a.m. may very well be the believer um, that came to faith very early on. Anyone else become a believer when they were a child? Anyone else grow up in the church a little bit? Anyone else kind of relative faithfulness throughout most of your life? What Jesus is talking about here is the 6 a.m. may very well be people like you and me who got here early, who grew up in the church, who did all the right things for a really, really, really long time. And slowly but surely over time, you subtly slip into self-righteousness and start to believe that because you've been there the longest and because you've been the most faithful and because you've put in the hard work, that God owes you more than he does other people. And the reality of this parable is it's not just the people who came to faith in Awana's. It's not just the 6 a.m.ers. It's not just that, but it's also the 9 a.m.ers, the people that came to faith a little bit later on. And it's also the people that came at noon in their 20s and 30s. And it's also the people that came at 3 p.m. a little bit later in life. It's always the people that came lately too. It's all of these different people who received God's grace and slowly but and subtly over time, they began to think that because of the things that they've done, they're repaying the grace of God, they're paying it back, and now God is in this place where he owes them something that he does not owe other people. And so it, that's who the 6 a.m. or is. It's not just the people who's far away. It's the people inside the church that slowly slip into that self-righteousness. So the question we need to look at is how do we know if we, you and I are marked by grace instead of being marked by self-righteousness? 
Now, the first thing I just want to draw out in this text is that the 6 a.m.ers are definitely marked by comparison instead of joy. This is one of the most obvious things that you're going to see throughout this text is that the 6 a.m.er is a person that's marked by comparison instead of being marked by grace and being marked by uh, joy in this whole thing. Verse 10, it says that when he got to the people who were hired first, it says that they were expected to receive more. Why were they expecting to receive more? It's because they're comparing themselves to what the 5 p.m.ers had already received. Now, the funny th- part about this whole story, I don't know if you've been thinking about this already, is like, the, the vineyard owner would not be having the problem that he had had he started with the 6 a.m.ers first. You notice that? Like, all he had to do was say, all right, 6 a.m.ers, you come up here, and I'm going to pay you what you're due. Here's your denarius. Be on your way. They would have taken that denarius. They would have been out of there, and they would have been completely satisfied by what the vineyard owner gave them. And then he could have done the exact same thing. They would have been pumped. The 9 a.m.ers, they go up next, and they come, and they, they're also getting a denarius. They're sitting there going, whoa, this is incredible. And they're going to go away completely satisfied and overjoyed too. 12 p.m.ers, you, what, you're giving me the exact same thing? Holy cow. Like, he could have had an entire field of workers completely satisfied and overjoyed by the grace that they received. But it's not what happens. He begins with the 5 p.m.ers first. All of a sudden, all hell breaks loose in the whole field and everything because that's what comparison always does. Comparison will always, 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 always be the thief of joy. Uh, James is going to say in James 3.16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every single evil practice. It's just what it does. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, you start comparing yourself, looking around, there will be evil and every other thing. Proverbs 14 is going to say the same thing. A tranquil or a peaceful heart will give life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. In other words, what he's saying is it's not a cute little thing that we all will do. It's actually a poison that will rob you of joy because it keeps you from seeing everything that you've freely been given. Um, I'll never forget, um, we've seen this from the infant stages of our life, right? Like we know that comparison is a thief of joy. Uh, when I was growing up, my dad was the guy in our family that made awesome pancakes in the home. And um, it's just kind of what he did. Every now and then on Saturdays, we'd come down in the morning and, and uh, he would be making pancakes for everybody. I remember this one morning, I came down early, beat out uh, my brothers and sister and everything and, and kind of got down there early and dad was there and he was making stuff and he's like, you want me to make you some pancakes? I'm like, absolutely, make, make those incredible pancakes. And he did this whole thing, like cast iron skillet, a little bit of oil in it, so it was a little bit crispy and just perfect inside, you know? And um, I came down there and, uh, and he made me the perfect pancake, Right? Like, it was incredible. It's just huge. It's perfectly round. And I went out there, and I ate it, and I loved the entire thing. And then all of a sudden, my brothers start coming down the stairs, and, and my sister comes a little bit later on and everything, and, and, uh, and he does the same thing for them. But so dad starts making the pancake, and, and I notice, like, he pulls it out, and it's, like, even bigger than the one that I had, right? <laughs> and, and he pulls it out. It's, a, it's this massive pancake. And my brother comes, and he's like, whoa, dad, this is the biggest pancake I've ever had in my entire life. And I look down there, and I'm like, Dad, what's up? Why do you hate me? Right? Like, I, I, like I just, all of a sudden, like I'm full and I'm satisfied at the whole thing. And I was already, like I'm totally satisfied. Dad made me the greatest thing in the world. And I'm looking at what's over here. And all of a sudden, I'm like, why do, why do, you, why do you love them more than you love me? Right? Like, like, why are you doing this whole thing? Like church, like that's what it does. It will always, always, always be the thief of your joy. Church, you ever do this? I mean, do you ever do this with people that are around you all the time? Maybe you notice kind of when you moved into your new home, uh, those first early years of, of moving into a brand new home, you thought it was the greatest home you've ever had. I mean, it was kind of your dream home at that time. And then you notice over time, okay, you start going out and people start inviting you into their place. And you start looking around a little bit and you're kind of going, hmm, uh, I think we made a little bit more space. 
I think we may need a little bit more. It's time for an upgrade. You start watching Chip and Joe on HGTV, and you're like, babe, where's the shiplap? We need some shiplap in this place, right? I mean, you know, you know how easy this is. And you start thinking, you're like going, okay, uh, you're like, why, why do these people over here who, who, who have not been as faithful, why do they have so much more than I do? Like, why did they get all the good stuff and I'm left with this over here? Or maybe it's a spouse, and maybe at the very beginning of that whole thing, you remember like in the early dating stages, you're going, okay, this person's absolute perfection. They're, they're, they're absolute perfection. And over a few years, you start looking around and start comparing yourself a little bit more, and all of a sudden, you start thinking, okay, well, why, why can't he be a little bit more like Bill? I mean, Bill keeps the yard perfect. Bill has the perfect job. It's actually interesting to talk about at night. I mean, he makes incredible money. He lets me do this, that, and the other, and it's fantastic. Or why can't she be godly Beyonce or something like that? Like, like you start looking around, and like all of a sudden you're kind of sitting there going, okay, Lord, like where are you in this whole thing? Why, why are they getting favor over here that I'm not? Like I've been with you forever. I've been with you since I was a child. I've been faithful. I've been walking. I've been serving. I've been doing all these different things. Or why is their life so full of ease? And why is all of a sudden is my loved one over here getting sick? God, I've been praying about this for a long time. I actually pray they've never prayed a day in their life and they're not having the troubles that we're having over here. Lord, don't you owe me a little bit more? Like I've been in your church. I've been serving you for a long time. I actually went out there on fourth Sunday evangelism and shared the gospel with somebody. I serve in the kids. I wipe runny noses. I, like, like, like my family's sick. You can't imagine, like I can't even pay the bills over here. And, and Johnny over here, who's never stepped foot in the church is just living the life of ease. God, what in the world is up with that? Don't you... Don't, like, where are you in this whole thing? Don't you owe me a little bit more than that? I mean, we've done this all the time, right? I'll, I'll never forget back in seminary days, there was a good friend of ours. She was put in a life group. We do these things called spiritual formation groups and um, essentially small group on campus. She's in the small group of women. She was about 26, 27 at the time, married at the time. Uh, still is, but anyway, she was married at that time. And um, she was put in a group where she was the only married girl in this group. Everyone else was over 40 at the time, and she's the young 26-year-old who's happily married. And she got into this group, and there came a point in time where the group came to her and said, yeah, um, we don't want you talking about your husband anymore. Like, we don't want to hear about a trip or any of her happiness or that, this, that, or the other. She also had a great job outside of seminary. She wasn't just doing that. And so she was talking about this job. And there's another time a little bit later on, they came back and they're like, yeah, you can't talk about that job anymore. Neither of us, ha none of those have those kinds of things. And, and we're sick and tired of kind of hearing about uh, these happy things that are kind of going on in your life. Church, this is in seminary. These are recipients of God's grace that are bitter and because we're living in the comparison trap. Church, it'll always, always, always steal your joy. I love the way that David writes about it in Psalm 23. He's going to say, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. The Lord is my shepherd. In other words, I have every single thing that I could possibly need. Church, you know when he wrote that psalm? He wrote that psalm when he was at war with his son. His son was literally trying to kill him. His, his world had fallen apart. His kingdom was in shambles. I mean, literally the enemies are encroaching upon him and everything that he had loved in the past is falling apart and he's simply finding himself in this place where he's able to cry out to the Lord and say, the Lord is my shepherd and you are the only thing in this world that I actually need. Church, that is how it is when you are marked by the grace of God in your life. All that you can see is him in everything. You're not looking around at other people. All you can see is the giver and the incredible gift that he has just given unto you. Church, do not let comparisons steal your joy. I love the way Paul puts this. Philippians chapter 4. 
He's wrapping up this letter to the Philippians here, and uh, he, he's writing about some of the gratitude he's experienced. They were very generous to him while he was in prison. They'd given him financial gifts and provision and things of that nature. And uh, he's wrapping it all up, and he says, uh, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, he says. In other words, I'm not thanking you for your financial gifts because I need more financial gifts, essentially. Uh, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. You want to know what that secret is? It's the one we quote all the time. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In other words, like, you're the only thing that I need. You're the only thing that I need. That's it. I'm not looking around. I'm not, I'm not looking at somebody else's house. I'm not looking at someone else's success. I'm not looking at someone else's marriage. I'm not craving a godly version of Beyonce. I'm not craving an easier life. I'm not looking at sickness over here, health over here, everything in between. I'm not looking all around. The only thing that I'm looking at is you. And the only thing that I'm receiving from is you. And in the context of that relationship where I am face-to-face with the giver, the only thing that I care to see is the incredible amount of grace that you are giving me in that moment. And that is the thing that sustains me and lets me be content in a world that is surrounded with comparison. Church, do not let comparison steal your joy. The 6 a.m.ers are marked by comparison. Always, always, always looking around. What do they have that I don't have? And the 5 p.m.er is so consumed with the giver and so consumed with the gift that they've just received. Second thing I want to point out here is that the 6 a.m.ers are marked by anger, maybe even indifference here, instead of compassion. Okay, they're marked by anger and indifference instead of compassion here. I don't know if you noticed this, but um, why did the 5 p.m.ers get there at 5 p.m.? I mean, were they being lazy here? Were they just sleeping in and kind of playing Fortnite all night long? And hey, it's 4 p.m. They're like, hey, I got to go get a job or something like that. It says it in verse 6. The landowner asked them the same question. It says, why are you standing here all day long doing nothing? And here's what they say. They say, because no one's hired us. In other words, like it's got nothing to do with, with, with being lazy or not wanting to work or not putting yourself out there or anything like that. But like where in the world is the empathy and compassion by the 6 a.m.ers? Where in the world are these people that are kind of sitting there going, these are people that, like, they know what it's like to be standing uh, in that day laborer's crowd. They know what it's like to go an entire day and not have work. They know what it's like not to be able to feed their family or have an income or anything like that. Where in the world is the joy from the 6 a.m.ers that are kind of sitting there going, hey, these people are now able to feed their family. These people actually had work to do. These people got a job. What an incredible gift that is that they were able to go and experience those kinds of things. Like church, why in the world can they not be excited for a bunch of people who did not have a job or an ability to feed their family who are now gonna be able to provide for their family? Like why in the world is it so difficult for some of us to celebrate with other people because the kindness of God has been poured out on them? Why in the world do we get jealous of friends and neighbors and stuff when they get married before we do? They have the kids before we do. They have that thing over there that we don't have. Why in the world is it so difficult to celebrate with those who have just had the kindness and the grace of God poured out upon their life? I mean, it's Jonah, right? Oh, this is, this is, I mean, this is absolutely Jonah's story. Jonah, I need you to go to the Assyrians and I need you to tell them about me. I, I want you to go preach the gospel to the Ninevites because they need to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jonah's like, wait, what? Come again. You, you want me to go to who? Like, I'm fine going and being a prophet of the nation of Israel. These are my people. These are the people that are like me and everything else like that. But, like, you want me to go to the Ninevites, the most wicked, evil, torturous people on the entire planet? 
Uh, you, want, you don't understand, like, they hate the Israelites. They hate your people. They've opposed us forever. They, 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 they cut people's heads off. I mean, these are evil, evil people. I'm out of here. And you remember the, the entire story. He tries to run from God. God outruns him, finds him on a boat. J- Jonah tries to end his life. God saves him through the life of a fish. And Jonah has the most broken, terrible repentance in the world. But he says, okay, God, you give me another chance. I'll, I'll go and I'll be faithful. And you remember what happens here. He goes to the, he goes to the Ninevites here. He preaches the worst sermon that, that any evangelist has ever given in their life. He's walking around and he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the entire gospel message that he's preaching. I've never had that kind of success before, right? Like, like 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And at that point in time, like God just starts showing off. There's this massive sweeping revival throughout the land because he's already prepared the people. And where the spirit of God is, you cannot, you cannot disrupt what he wants to do. And like massive revival sweeps out over the land. People are repenting left and right. They are bowing before Yahweh, giving him praise and glory and honor. And Jonah's off in the corner sulking. He's angry and he's furious because the grace of God has come to a people that do not deserve the grace of God. You remember what he says? I mean, I love what he says. He says, God, isn't this exactly what I said was going to happen? I told you this is what what was going to happen. It's why I ran in the first place. Like I, I knew that you were gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. So kill me now because I'd rather be dead than see these people live. Church, like, have you ever been angry at the grace of God in someone else's life? I mean, have you ever, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's a mom or dad or somebody like that. And, like, they were never there for you your entire childhood. All of a sudden, in the latter parts of their years, they repent. And, and it's this broken, terrible repentance. But, hey, you know what? Like, God has given them grace. Does it make you angry? Or, or maybe it's, or, I mean, maybe it's your ex. They got sober and they found Jesus and God has completely transformed their life and and he's doing incredible things in the life, but now he's with somebody who's not your family. You're left in the dust. I mean, you ever been there before? I mean, I'll never forget preaching. Uh, one of the first times I ever preached was in a, a very, very small church in town, uh, probably about 12 years ago, something like that. And I remember preaching this message. I was talking all about the grace of God and the power of Christ's blood. And I said something to the effect of, I don't care if uh, your sins has surpassed Hitler's, then you too can be forgiven and saved. And it was making this point about the enormity of God's grace and the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I remember after the sermon was done, young kid, and this old lady comes up to me, and she's furious. And she's really, really angry at the whole thing. And she says, young man, you could not be more wrong. That man was Satan incarnate in the flesh. He could never, ever, ever, ever be saved. And I'm kind of sitting there going, okay, this is my first confrontation as a preacher, first of many. And... Um, And I didn't see the need to argue at that time, but I'm just thinking what Paul said. Paul put it like this. He said, make no mistake, Christ came into this world to die for sinners, among whom I am foremost of them all. And church, like, that's exactly what the 6 a.m. has forgotten. Like, they've never had that perspective. They've never identified with what Paul is saying here. Make no mistake that Christ came into this world to die for sinners, among whom I am foremost of them all. The 6 a.m. believes that they've graduated from that place. The 6 a.m. or believes that they've moved past that time where they've needed that thing, they've paid it all back, they're fine. Those sinners are those other people over there. The 6 a.m.ers have moved past that point in time and they have forgotten that even though I may have arrived early and even though I may have been faithful for a number of years and even though I may have been more obedient and thrown the rock of righteousness a little bit further than my friends or those people over there or these people over here, I am still a 5 p.m.er who is in desperate need of God's grace. 
And church, like if that's where we are, if you're the 6 a.m. And, and, and the sinners are those people over there and I'm already the redeemed right here, uh, right here and now, and, and I no longer need the grace of God, then, then we are always gonna be filled with self-righteous anger instead of compassion for the generosity of God coming to people when they are in need. We will always see that separation. The last one I want to show you here is that the 6 a.m.ers are people that are marked by grumbling instead of gratitude. They're marked by grumbling instead of gratitude here. We see this at the very beginning in verse 11. He gets to the early crowd, and they're expecting to receive a whole lot more than the other people that are there in that day. And it says that each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, it says that they began to grumble against the landowner. Literally, it's a word that means to murmur or complain because you think that you've been wronged in a situation. And the reality is, like, church, like, some of us are there. Like, 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 we are bitter and angry and grumbling all the time because we honestly believe that God is withholding something that we have rightfully earned through our obedience, through our faithfulness, and this, that, and the other. I mean, church, it's exactly what we see in Israel all throughout the Old Testament, right? We, we, we see this when, when Israel has just been redeemed. They've just been freed from the bondage of slavery for over 400 years at the hands of the Egyptians, I mean, we, we remember this story. Moses comes in. God uses them to go and to say, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's resistant. Uh, of course, God brings the ten plagues. Miraculously d- divine intervention that takes place. Finally, the Israelites are set free. They're on their way to the promised land. They get to the edge of the Red Sea, and they kind of look back, and, and, and they're kind of going, okay, uh, Pharaoh hasn't given up here. He's still chasing them. And you remember exactly what happens. Charlton Heston raises up his hands, right? He raises up his hands, and God miraculously parts the sea. They walk across on dry land. The Egyptians are in close pursuit. The waters come crashing down. Israel is safe and delivered on the other side. I mean, it's this unbelievable experience of God's grace and his power intervening in, this time, in their time of need. And so you open up in Exodus 15, and immediately as that thing takes place, I mean, you see an entire nation of people that are gathering to worship the Lord, their God, with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and their strength. I mean, Exodus 15 reads like the Psalms. It says, uh, the the people have gathered, and they say, I'm going to sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He is hurled into the sea. The, the, The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. Uh, My father is God, and I'm going to exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Uh, Pharaoh's chariots and his army have been hurled into the sea. I mean, it reads exactly like the Psalms. I mean, verse 8, I love verse 8. They say, by the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. In other words, God, like you sneezed and the waters parted. And there was like, Lord, you breathed out breath and literally the waters parted and you made it to where we could walk across on dry land. They're just praising him over and over again. Who among the gods is like you, O God? Who is like you, majestic in holiness and awesome in glory, constantly working wonders? Church, like that's what you do when you're marked by grace. Like that's what you do when the only thing that you can see is the giver in front of your face and the incredible gift of grace that he has just given to you. I mean, there's an explosion of gratitude and worship becomes the norm. Like I was lost and I was dead in my sins. And in the middle of that place, you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live the perfect life I could not live and to die the sinner's death that I was supposed to die. You conquered sin and death. You walked out of that tomb alive. You gave me the opportunity to have eternal life now and for all of eternity 
you didn't leave me alone right now. You filled me with your Holy Spirit. You gave me your power, gave me the ability to be completely set free. You promised that you would never leave me nor forsake me. You continue to be with me in your presence day by day by day. You have breathed life into the word of God that I may know you for the rest of my days. You have prepared a place in heaven for me to go forever and ever and ever. Church, like worship is what happens when you've been marked by the grace of God. And when the only thing that you can see is him and the incredible gift of God's grace that he has given to you. And the sad story of Israel is that the only thing that they needed to do was remember. All they needed to do was remember 10 massive plagues that were miraculous in every possible way. And a sea that literally parted and was able to allow them to walk across on dry land. All they had to do was remember that grace. And literally a few days later in Deuteronomy 127, it says that they grumbled in their tents. And they said things like, the Lord hates us. And he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites in order to destroy us. <laughs> Sounds just like Jonah. Seriously? You think that God went through 10 plagues and parting the Red Sea because he hates you? I mean, Psalm 106, 24, it says that they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promises, so they grumbled in their tents and they did not obey the Lord. Church, where in the world is the gratitude? Where in the world are these eyes to be able to see the miraculous divine intervention of God all throughout their lives? Plagues, Red Sea, provision in the wilderness, manna, safety, it's just over and over and over again. And there's grumbling in their, in their hearts, kind of going, Lord, where are you? Like, where are your people? Don't we deserve more? Where are your people? I, 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 and, you, and those people over there, they're not experiencing what we are. God, where in the world are you? I've been walking with you for years like you owe me. And what Jesus is showing us all throughout this text is that when you and I are marked, up, marked by God's grace, like you simply do not forget about the grace that you've received. Never forget a number of years ago when I told you all a little bit about my aunt. Uh, her name is Friend, just not to be confusing, and my cousin Kimberly. My cousin Kimberly was born, uh, and doctors did not expect her to live. Um, but a few years back, we we went to her funeral. Uh, she made it over 30 years in this world, and, and her story was a miraculous one by nature. By, uh, she, it was just a, every step of the way was a miraculous uh, intervention of God. And do, she was born, and the doctors said that she wasn't going to live more than a couple days, and she had a ton of physical deformities and, um, and mental, uh, mental deformities, too. And there's just almost, she almost passed away on day three. She bit off her tongue, all these different things. The doctors were saying that she, they need to, she, my aunt needed to let her go and just kind of let her pass away early on. And my aunt stuck with it. Her husband left and decided he didn't want to be a father of a disabled child. And so he took off as soon as she was born. And she was kind of left by herself to take care of her, my cousin Kimberly, for the rest of her days. And for 30 years, uh, my cousin Kimberly grew up. And God just had one miraculous intervention after another. She passed away at about 30 years old, which is a number of years ago now. And um, I remember going to that funeral and really expecting it to be kind of a different scene. I uh, really expected, you know, a lot of just a ton of grief and disappointment. And I remember showing up to my aunt's house that day, and she came in, and, and she had a smile on her face, and she was serving other people. She was greeting people and thanking people for being there. I was really expecting to see somebody who was kind of broken down and, and disheveled and all those kinds of things, and it just wasn't her whole demeanor. And so we went throughout the day. We went to the funeral, and 
the funeral was very much a worship service. There was very much this um, praise God for everything that he's done. I remember coming back at the end of the evening and, and just talking with my aunt, and I pulled her aside, and I was like, okay, so now that everybody's kind of gone, how are you really, really, really doing here? Um, you don't have to, to perform. Like, well, how are you really doing here? And she goes, honestly, Aaron, like, I, I'm doing okay. She goes, I've, I've been doing a lot of reminiscing on the past 30 years, and, and uh, honestly, I've got so much to be thankful for that God gave me 30 years with my daughter when no one else expected that she would have, that I'd even have more than a week. And she just started going through just miracle after miracle after miracle. They were saying, the doctors were saying that she'd never be able to speak. And all of a sudden, three and a half years old, they're coming back from the Mayo Clinic. And she's crying because the Mayo Clinic had just said, hey, she's never going to be able to speak. And driving back from the Mayo Clinic down to Tallahassee, Florida, in the backseat of the car, she shouts out, hallelujah, praise Jesus, as a three and a half year old child that had very little bit of a tongue and said, was, you're not going to be able to speak the rest of your life. And she just starts going off miracle after miracle after miracle. She'd never be able to get out of a chair. She's able to walk around. She'd never be able to uh, emotionally be able to think about things and put things together. And she would, uh, the stories that we told that day are some of the most loving and affectionate stories of this girl going and loving people in grocery stores, loving people on the street, loving friends that came into this place, and uh, just expressing how much she loved them. And she goes, honestly, when I think about where Kimberly is right now, I mean, the Bible gives me this hope that she is in the presence of God. Her legs are healed. Her mind is healed. Her tongue is completely healed. She is praising God in fluency of tongue right now, and she is dancing in the presence of Jesus. She's like, how in the world could I be anything but overjoyed by where she is and how she is right now? Church, it's just what it is to be marked by God's grace. When you're marked by God's grace, you're just keenly aware of who he is and everything that he's done for us. Like you're constantly rehearsing it over and over and over and over again. You're worshiping day and night. You're praying out to him and you're just constantly reminded of the fact that I was lost and dead in my sins. I was an alien. I was a, I was a stranger according to the promise. Like I was, I was far away. I was lost and dead in my sins. And in the middle of that place, God in his infinite love fixed his love upon me and he sent his one and only son, Jesus. Like when you're marked by God's grace, you're so consumed with him. You're not looking around at other people. You're not taking time to say, okay, but, but what's Watermark doing down the street? Or what's, what's the heights going? What, what do they have going on down there? What about Hope Fellowship? And they're planting churches left and right. You're just like, you're so consumed with him. And you're only looking at him. And you're only receiving the beauty of his grace every single day. And you're so consumed with that joy. It's what it is to be marked by grace. It's gratitude instead of grumbling. It's joy instead of comparison. And it's compassion instead of indifference. So I'm just going to ask this question one more time, church. Like, are you a person who is totally and completely marked by God's grace? Or are you a recipient of God's grace who struggles to give it out on a day-to-day basis? I'm going to invite you to bow and uh, pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you because, God, your grace never stops. Everything I have is an incredible gift of your grace and your mercy. I did nothing to deserve it. Father, what have we done to deserve you? What have we done to pay you back? Heavenly Father, all we did was walk away. We got there late. Maybe we even slept in, and Father, you decided to pay us anyway. We praise you 
and we thank you. And Father, right now, I just want to pray for the person who's come in and maybe they're like the rich young ruler and they're kind of asking the question, what do I need to do to be saved? And without even knowing it, we're just, we're asking the wrong question. Father, I pray for that person because the reality of the gospel is there is nothing that you can do to be saved. You can't earn it. You can't go to church enough. You can never pay it back. You can't pay for it. You can't deserve it. You can't be good enough, moral enough, because the standard of God is holiness. And the reality is that we've all stand and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none who are righteous, not even one person. But the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in the middle of that place, when we were lost and dead in our sins, God still loved you and me. So much so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live the sinless life that we could not live. And because the wages of our sin is death, God in his infinite love sent Jesus to come and to die the death that we were supposed to die. He hung on that cross. He suffered, he bled, and he died. And the word of God assures us that three days later, he walked out of a tomb alive, proving that he is the son of God. He was who he says, who he said that he was, and that he alone has the power to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life. And the even more beautiful thing about that is it's not an eternal life that we earn, but the Bible says that it is by God's grace that you and I are saved through faith. That not of ourselves, it is a free gift of God so that none of us will ever, ever, ever be able to boast or become self-righteous or become numb or any of those other things. It is a gift that you and I must receive. Father, for the person who's come in here today and has been hoping on and trusting in any other thing, God, by your grace, would they receive you today? Would you give them faith to say, I am a sinner and I believe that Christ has died upon that cross for the forgiveness of my sins. Father, would you grant them eternal life? For the church, God, I pray that you would chip away at the self-righteousness that we subtly creep into on a daily basis. Father, would you forgive us for thinking that we deserve more than anything that you've given to us? Father, I pray that we would be softened by the enormity of your grace today. God, that we would live as 5 p.m.ers who just showed up and have been given everything. May it come out in our worship, in our generosity, in our giving, in the way that we relate to other people, Father, but may we be people, a church, a multiplying, mission-minded family that is marked by God's grace, that truly brings joy to our city and glory to God. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. Church, I want to give you just one minute. Still heads bowed and eyes closed. I just want to give you a minute to just be quiet before the Lord. I want to invite you to ask this question, God, where am I? Am I a recipient of God's grace who's got a difficult time giving it away? Or am I right now totally and completely marked by God's grace? The band is just going to play. And in a few minutes, you'll be invited to stand and sing one more time.